morning. Cool. Hi, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, um, I get to lead this church, which is a good thing. Well, it's for me anyway. <laughs> I think other people sometimes appreciate it. Um, so, uh, have a great time, youth. Enjoy yourselves. And um, I may have just drifted off slightly when uh, Al was saying about the conference next week. Did you say they need to book today? No, I didn't. See, if you book after midnight tonight, we're not going to give you lunch next Saturday. And it'll still cost you 10 quid. So book today, and then you'll get lunch. And it'll still cost you 10 quid, but it'll be worth it. So um, book today. It will be worth it anyway, especially what Al's going to share. It's going to be amazing. Um, Are we on with the PowerPoint? In just a moment, I'm sure it will be there. Um, We're in a series. It was there already, and it's going to appear there too, that we are um, looking to be a growing church in this academic year. That's uh, an expectation that's based on what the Bible has to say about God and how he works with people. And so we're going to be looking at that a little bit this morning as we continue a series through the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica called First Thessalonians. We're going to get there in just a minute. But before we do that, I wanted to do a little reminder for people who weren't here in early September of how this vision for growth works out in practice for us in our praying. I spoke in early September about these kinds of growth that the scriptures lead us to believe God will give us, that there will be for us a growth in maturity. It's a wonderful, wonderful biblical teaching about growing up to a place of completeness in Christ, which is a place of fruitfulness and security and being grounded. God wants that for us. And it's something for us to pray that we'd grow in maturity in Christ. So growth in extent, that's the kind of world map that's there. And God intends to spread his glory through the whole world. And that means touching new places, new people, new ethnic groups, new subcultures. And we want to pray for that too. And in all of that, there is a growth in numbers. I mean, Al just spoke about statistics. Some of you are really motivated by statistics Others of you think that numbers mean it's not very personal. Um, But however you think about that, the reality is that God wants more people in his family. So there's a prayer for increase in numbers that also matters. And we've begun to pray for growth in maturity, growth in the extent of our reach as a body of believers, and, and of course in numbers as well. It's delighted that last week with our Harvest Fair, there were more people than the year before. It's an increase in numbers. We served 250 lunches, I think. 230 lunches. It's always good to be exact with the numbers, isn't it? Not to be evangelistic, as sometimes people are. Um, We began to pray just recently for a growth in the Edge Housing Project, that there will be more houses, and there is now a third house underway already. So there's a swift answer to prayer. So isn't God good? What happens is that we pray and God acts. These few minutes here where people were praying may or may not have struck you as a kind of history-changing moment, but they were. Because all of our praying makes a difference. We pray and God acts. Now, amongst these things of maturity and extent and numbers, the uh, maturity thing is a little bit more of an internal thing, isn't it? It's something that God does in us. 
And so sometimes we're praying for things to happen in us. And the things about extent and numbers are more out there things. And sometimes we're praying for what God's going to do around us, out there. As we look in a moment at 1 Thessalonians, uh, the passage that we have, you're going to see quite quickly, is a passage about what God wants to do in us. This morning we have more of a growth internally kind of a morning. Uh, There'll be other times when the focus is more on what God's doing out there, through us and around us. Just want to remind you, and for those of you who've just arrived in this church as we're doing this series, that's the passage we have for this morning. I want to remind you of the background. I was able to pull a map of the most of these towns straight off Google because they're still there. Um, this is a little bit of a story in, that's recorded for uh, us in Acts 16, 17, 18. This bit of the story of Paul's second journey out from the area that we now know as Syria. And this is the first time of getting into Europe. This, this little, these little arrows, this is a showing the first moment that news of Jesus was brought onto European soil. In around about AD 49, 50. And uh, they came in, first of all, to Philippi, that's there in the top right-hand side. They had a great time there until Paul cast a demon out of a fortune-telling girl, and she stopped being able to tell fortunes, and there was a riot. You might know that story. And so they moved on. And they moved to Thessaloniki, which is still there. It's still the second city of Greece. still exists. You can go visit. And then um, they didn't stay there so long. It says in Acts 17 that Paul preached three Sundays in the synagogue. And then the next thing it tells us is that they're, they're having to move out of the city. So not there very long. They went on to a place called Berea, which is there on the left. And then the trouble following them to Berea, they moved on to Athens, which is down south. The reason there's other couple of arrows are there is that having gone down south to Athens, Paul is concerned, particularly for the church in Thessaloniki, wanting to know what they were only there a short period of time. Like, what happened? How are they doing? And so he sent Luke. Sorry, no, he didn't send Luke. He sent Timothy. He sent Timothy back up to Thessaloniki to get a report and to bring it back to him. And it's having got that report from Timothy that Paul now writes this letter, his first letter to the Thessalonians that we have. Maybe he sent a letter with Timothy. We don't know. But the first one that we have is this one in your Bibles. If you have your Bible, do open it um, or turn it on. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2. I'm going to read from verse 14. You might be slightly surprised that that seems to be beginning in the middle of a paragraph, in the middle of a bit that doesn't even have its own title, Well, you know, in the original Greek, it didn't have any of that. It didn't even have chapters and verses. And we're splitting it where most of the commentators do. So it's okay. Don't be disturbed by that. Also, I just wanted to say this morning, um, pretty much everywhere else I preach, and this this might seem a self-serving thing, so I've been hesitant to say it, but I think it's worth saying, um, pretty much everywhere else I preach, people have notebooks and pens. And I don't think they just do it for me. They do it because it's the habit of many churches. So I just want to get hold of whatever's in the Word of God. I want to process it. I want to make sure I take on board whatever there is to learn of God from his Word. And I just noted, having been in other places recently and seen everybody get out their notebooks, I don't have that experience here, and nor do any of our other preachers. It's not, the, it's not me. It's us, isn't it? That I just wanted to make a note of that and say, that's a good culture. 
the culture that we want is not a notebook culture. We want a learning culture, don't we? And if a notebook would help, which it probably would for most people, you know, the notes might get put on a shelf and never be looked at again. But if it's helped the process of learning and it's effected change, that, that of course, is what we're after. Anyway, 1 Thessalonians 2 and from verse 14. You, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. Sounds like a good thing, but the next verse explains what that looked like. Became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and they're hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person but not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or, or the crown in which we'll glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, and we sent Timothy, who's our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we're destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way, the tempter might have tempted you, and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you, and has brought good news about your faith and love, he told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that, that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Sometimes you come to a passage of scripture and it makes most sense to go through it in chunks to dig out the goodness that's there. What I'm going to do this morning is instead pick up three different strands that run right through all of these, these verses. Three different strands. And the first of those is this. It's the fact that they were growing amidst opposition. The opposition was very physical and political and had the power to put people in prison. 
It was intimidating. It happened that for Paul at this time, uh, and for the Thessalonians as well, that this trouble came in particular through the Jewish community in the city. And sometimes people have read these verses uh, in 1 Thessalonians and said, that sounds like a manifesto for anti-Semitism. Like it's not hard to see how sometimes Christian preachers have preached up a hatred for the Jews when they've got the ammunition provided here. Of course, this is not an anti-Semitic text. Uh, It simply was the fact that at this point in history, at this time, it was indeed Jews who were at that time persecuting Paul and his team and the churches that he planted. If we were to move not very further uh, on through history, it would just be the Romans themselves getting on with persecuting the church. And then when missionaries went north, the Visigoths would have persecuted the church. And today, there are Wahhabi Muslims and there are North Koreans and all kinds of people in between persecuting Christians. It's not the Jews alone who have persecuted Christians, but at this time and in this place, they were. Paul in no way allowed that to breed in himself a hatred of the Jews. He was himself a Jew, and he didn't say, I've thrown off that identity. Uh, that's right. he, I, doesn't, I haven't thrown off that community now that I'm a Christian, and now I hate them whilst loving my fellow Christian believers. But rather, he, he gloried in his inheritance as a Jew. You can read that in Philippians chapter 3. And he proclaimed the gospel in every city first in the synagogue or to the place where he could find Jews. It was his preference to display God's love to the Jewish community first and foremost. Paul was in no way an anti-Semite. It's just how it was for them. And so whereas the title that we put out ahead of this week for what this subject would be this morning was about, you may have seen it, uh, growing in suffering, growing through suffering. The suffering has a particular shape to it. The suffering that's spoken of here is not just suffering, but as I've already got on the PowerPoint, it's about growing amidst opposition. There are people who are against us. Opponents. The word that is most naturally used to describe that is the word enemies. I don't know how you feel about using the word enemy to describe people. Sometimes I think as Christians we end up being nicer than Jesus and we say we don't have any enemies. Well, Christ had enemies. What he said was love your enemies, not pretend they're not your enemies. The difference between friends and enemies is not whether we love those people, because we're called to love all people, friends and enemies. It's not that I like my friends and hate my enemies. That's old covenant. But for Christians, I love my friends and I love my enemies. There is a difference, though, between those two kinds of relationships. With friends, I have people with whom I share common goals and uh, and joys and affections and beliefs. We're headed in the same direction together. 
And there's a joy in the togetherness that whether it's, you know, we enjoy going fly fishing together or we enjoy worshipping the Lord together. I may have non-Christian friends and Christian friends, but they're people with whom I share things. Enemies are people who, far from sharing things with us, are headed in a different direction. They they, They do not want to accompany us in the direction that we're headed and sometimes want to stand in the way of us heading in that direction. They are opposed to us. There is hostility. And sometimes we get confused and think that that even to use any of those words makes us out to look angry people. But Jesus says, love your enemies. It's okay to own the fact that we face opposition. In uh, verse... 15 of chapter 2, it says, of these people who at that time were persecuting the church, and by persecution, by the way, let's be clear, we, we're talking about throwing people in prison, confiscating their property, and then occasionally killings. Because they experienced the same thing that was experienced by the church in Judea, and that's what was going on there. <coughs> They're hostile, not only to us, it says in verse 15, hostile to all people. Hostile to all people. Because people who oppose those with the message of Christ, which is a message of good news to all people, those who oppose the message about Christ are hostile to all people because there's this amazing good news to be spoken to all people, be a blessing to all people. And so to oppose that is to oppose blessing coming to all people. And it's a, it's a hostility to humanity as a whole. In verse 3 of Chapter 3, Paul says, You know quite well that we are destined for these trials. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way. This opposition is predictable. It's not a surprise. A shock. Uh, Paul, in his preaching, as recorded in Acts 14, says it takes many hardships to enter the kingdom. Jesus said... If they, this is in John chapter 15, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. And then he says in chapter 16 of John's gospel, in this world, you'll have trouble. Comforting words of Christ. In this world, you will have trouble. Now, the imitation that has gone on here of the church in Thessaloniki to the church in Judea, it's not an active imitation. It's not like 1 Corinthians 11, where uh, Paul writes, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul there says, imitate me. <laughs> it's not an active imitation. The church in Thessaloniki didn't say, well, church in Jerusalem's getting killed. We ought to do something to get ourselves killed. No. Uh, they imitated godliness of the church in Judea, and then with that came the opposition. Uh, So we don't aim for opposition. There's not some kind of badge of honor that says, I've faced more persecution than you have. 
Rather, what we do is we aim to follow Christ seriously in the world. To use Jesus' words again from John 17, to be in the world but not of it. We aim to be seriously following Christ in the world. You know, you can seriously follow Christ in some kind of Christian ghetto where you only ever meet Christians and you won't get much opposition there. Or you can live life in the world without being too serious about your faith and you won't get much opposition there either. But if you dare to bring those things together and to seriously follow Christ in the world, then you're going to predictably get some hostility at some point and in some ways. I want to ask the question, is anyone facing that kind of opposition right now? Here. A few, a couple of people waving hands. Um, I imagine there's more than a couple of people facing hostility right now because of your Christian faith lived out in the world. It's a predictable thing. And here's another thing about that hostility. It's not just at a human level. It's not just to be explained psychologically or sociologically. It's a spiritual thing. Chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, Satan stopped us coming to you. Now, we don't know what that was, whether it was the fear of Jason, who was the person in Thessaloniki who'd been put on bail in the way things worked out with Paul, or, or whether Paul was ill, or we, we don't know. But Paul says, we don't really need to know what the practical thing was. The point is that Satan was behind it. There's a spiritual opposition that we face. And it's more important to identify that spiritual opposition is there than for us to know all the details of it. Because Paul wants us to know there's a spiritual opposition that lies behind whatever we're facing of hostility in the world. Paul says also in chapter 3 and verse 5 that he was anxious that the tempter might have tempted them. There is not just this kind of hostility in the sense of soldiers outside of us, but there's something that goes on within us, which is also a spiritual battle. And there's opposition that we experience there as well. And of course, that's why we need to pray in response to this opposition. We don't just kind of man up and come up with a plan and grit our teeth, but we pray. That's what Christians do. That's how come it's possible to grow in the midst of opposition, because we have the power of prayer. Prayers like this from Psalm 22. Here's a description of being in a place of opposition. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is the psalm that Jesus quotes from when he's on the cross. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It goes on. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. You find many prayers like that in the Psalms. People being honest about having enemies and needing God's help. We pray for God's action outside of us 
to remedy our, our situation. And then prayers like the, in Philippians, where Paul writes, uh, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a praying in the midst of opposition that deals with what's going on inside of us as well. We have to pray. Growth amidst opposition is only possible through prayer that would change the circumstance and change us too. That's what we see going on in the church in Thessaloniki, growing amidst opposition. They also grew a settled faith. In the NIV, it uses the word unsettled to describe Paul, what Paul was afraid might have happened with them, that they would somehow, in all of this difficulty, have become unsettled in their faith. And Timothy, wonderfully, can report that isn't what's happened and that they have found a settled faith. Uh, how? Uh, yeah. Paul wanted to know had their faith endured in his absence? Because it's, it's not a given that it would have done. Um, we are a church that has planted churches in different places, in different nations. Um, the reality is that not every one of those churches has endured. Some of them have faced a level of challenge that has made continuance impossible for them. Dwindled, perhaps, to just a few people holding on to faith, but not a community. It's not a given that every church would endure. And Paul knew that. Of course, we don't have letters written to the towns where the church is no more. We only have letters to the Thessalonians and the Philippians and the Colossians and the places where the church continued. But Paul knows that's not how it always worked out. But this group of people, by the grace of God, had found a settled faith that would endure. Put a picture of an anchor chain on, having been reminded of the hymn. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. It's fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. It is safely moored, twill the storm withstand, for it is well secured by the Savior's hand, and the cables passed from his heart to mine can defy the blast through strength divine. It will firmly hold in the straits of fear when the breakers have told the reef is near. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Praise God. The church in Thessaloniki had discovered this truth, that while Paul was absent, the Lord was near. Just as he's near to each one of us. And through that, Timothy was able to come back with a report to Paul that the Lord's message rang out from Thessaloniki. So it says in chapter 1 and verse 8 of this letter, the Lord's message rang out from them throughout Macedonia, that's their region, and into Achaia, which is the bit down south 
where Paul had gone. And even beyond that, Paul says, everyone's hearing about you. There's a wonderful, wonderful strength and radiance that's there. Even so, they had this settled faith, but there was more maturity still to come. I don't know if you picked that up. In the very last verse that I read, chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what's lacking in your faith. The rest of the book, and indeed two Thessalonians, give us an indication as to what Paul saw lacking in their faith. And it seems that it was in the areas of sex, sloth, and the second coming. Um, that's sl- not sloths. <laughs> uh, they did not have a problem with slow-moving mammals. Um, but slothfulness, as a church, they somehow picked up the idea that uh, it was okay not to work, which is just not true. Um, they had, so the coming weeks, we'll see, they had problems in the area of sex, sloth, and the second coming, and Paul writes about that. And so Paul knew that like, they had a settled faith, they settled, rooted in Christ, still some growing to go on. And that's true for many of us. We found a place of being settled in Christ, but there is more maturity to come. There's more that God wants to do, supplying the lack that we may experience. As we got towards this morning, um, God began to speak to Bex about something that she's now going to come and share with us. And this is really going to help us engage personally with uh, what God has to say to us this morning. I need a microphone. There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to bask in the glory of the sun with flowers in bloom and a garden bursting with life, and a time for a season that is colder sparser, darker, and harder. A time where there is a chill in the air. But I will not shut myself away behind closed doors, comfort myself, and withdraw. I will listen intently, craning my neck to hear his whispers on the wind, coaxing me drawing me out to face the elements with him, my hand in his. Standing in the debris of the garden, surveying what has been lost and what is dying, he reminds me that he is an all-year-round, all-weather gardener. He is not simply a florist who arranges cut stems for instant gratification and decoration. He is an expert gardener, committed, a planner with a perfect plan. He is a hard grafter, always at work. Yes, there is a time and a season for everything, but in every time and season, there can be hope life and growth. 
And so in this season that I'm in, he's asking me to plant bulbs. They're not an instant fix to my sad looking garden. There's no sudden transformation, but there is growth. A slow growing, so much unseen underground, but no less true. These bulbs are my just turning up. They are my shouting prayers and the silent ones. They are my tears of disappointment. They are my lifting up my hands in worship when the words just won't come out. They are my accepting help and my reaching out. They are perseverance and dogged determination to love him, worship him, and walk with him. This is a time for digging deep, sleet in my face, shivering hands, planting small bulbs. I am a defiant worshipper in the presence of my enemies. In all seasons, you will find me here. Summer and spring, of course, but in autumn, Yes, in winter, yes. I am not going anywhere. You see, I am his. I've been bought, been purchased forever and ever, amen. So let the storms come, hail, hurricanes, hell and high waters. I will not be shaken. I will not be moved. I will simply put my roots down deeper. Because I'm growing up. If Paul sent Timothy to Oxford, what would he report? If Timothy had a chance to sit down and have a chat... Find out what's going on in your spiritual life. What would he report? Roots going down deeper. Growing up. We pray. We pray for growth. We pray for maturity. We pray God help us. I want to be in the garden in all weathers, but I like double glazing. God help me. God help us. And the us matters. It's not just about me. It's about us. This is the third strand in what Paul writes. It's about love. When Paul described the, 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 his need to leave Thessaloniki. He said it's like the forced separation was like being orphaned. It's like a close family member had been taken away and put beyond reach. Chapter 2 verse 17 says, we were torn away from you. Chapter 3, verse 1. We could stand it no longer. And then having heard news of their continuing faith and their affection for the team that had come to them, 
Paul writes, chapter 3, verse 8, nah, now we really live. It's like before we had this connection with you, there wasn't even life in our bones. But now we live. Chapter 2, earlier than the bit that I've read, describes Paul and Silas and Timothy being like mothers to these new believers in Thessaloniki. And um, I think there are probably a couple of mothers here this morning who've sent children off to university. Uh, We've prayed for uh, young people coming to Oxford, but there are some who've gone or are going And um, I remember when I first went to university, bless my mum, I think it probably took me about four weeks before I made a phone call. (laughs) And that's more acceptable now, isn't it? It's it's less acceptable now because everyone's got a mobile phone. We had to queue for the phone. So this is how old I am. There was one phone between about 80 students and it was fixed on a wall. And um, when my mum, if my mum wanted to phone, she'd have to phone that number, and someone would answer it who didn't know who I was, and have to walk up and down the corridor saying, "Is there a Steve Jones anywhere?" So it wasn't straightforward. Nonetheless, to leave my mum four weeks without communication was unkind. I didn't know what a mother's heart was and how it bled. For children, those, uh, yeah, don't leave it four weeks. Um, but that's what Paul's heart was like. For the, he is, it wasn't that he'd sent the Thessalonians all away. He'd had to go away. But that's how he felt. It was like, I need some news, please. Because I love you. He had this depth of longing for them. What had happened is he turned up in that city and he'd allowed his heart to expand to include those people. And then they were in him. He had a heart connection with them. He wanted to be with them. And whilst he couldn't be with them, he needed to know that they were okay. John Chrysostom, you may or may not have heard of, was one of the greatest Christians of the 4th century, lived in Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. And he said this of the fellowship of Christians that he was part of, there is nothing I love more than you. There is nothing I love more than you. Not even light itself. I would have gladly put out my eyes 10,000 times over If it were possible by this means to convert your souls, so much is your salvation dearer to me than life and light itself. The one thing in which I strive is this, that I love you. I am wrapped up in you. You are my all, father, mother, brethren, children. Paul loved them. You know, sometimes I've been reading the commentaries on this passage, and most of the commentators put a focus on how Paul is an example of a great pastor. Um, Which is great for me, because then I can read this passage and be challenged by it. But you know what? It wasn't just written for people like me. Paul here 
is actually an example of a great Christian. And these words are written for all of us. They're an encouragement and a challenge to us all. That there is a depth of connection that it's possible for us to have with one another, brothers and sisters. And it's not dependent on living in the same place. You know, Oxford has the highest turnover of population of anywhere in the UK. 25% of the population of this city moves on every year. So what? God connects us to people and we remain connected. We have friends in many places. Um, You know, when I say so what, I don't know how that sounds to you. That is a costly so what. That's not a, like, people come, people go, ta-da. We have friends in many places. I wish I was with them. I wish they were with me. I wish they hadn't gone. I wish we were together. I need their news. I need to know that they're okay. It matters where we are, but it matters more whether God has joined our hearts. For the last few months, I'm nearly finished. For the last few months, I've had an old chorus rolling around my head, and I've wondered when it might be good for us to sing it together. And then I've held back, because like, it's a really old chorus, and musical tastes have moved on. <laughs> and then I realized that the fact that it was a really old chorus, and I couldn't think of any more recent song that prayed this prayer, made it all the more important that we sang it. Because it's like there's, some, there's a prayer we're going to sing. I'm going to invite you to sing together. Which, um, yeah, it seems like it's dropped out of our, our toolkit. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. But we didn't hand out those bulbs, did we? Can we just take a moment to circulate some bulbs, please? Bex's poem um, spoke about us planting the bulbs and uh, we should have paused then to hand them around here we go just um but the basket's going to come by take a bulb they all look pretty much the same want to want you to have something physical in your hand that speaks of the realities of life and of the invitation to go deeper in all seasons and to seek growth in all seasons. I'll just wait till everybody's got one. Tubers. <laughs> so they're not tubers, are they? Sorry. No, they're not. I'm sorry. They're bulbs. They're not tubers at all. All right. You got one? Yeah. The song um, goes like this. It's really simple. I need, there we go. It's a song that's a prayer. Bind us together, Lord. I haven't sung this song since the 1980s. 
bind us together with cords that can't be broken. There's the punchline. That's the strong prayer. Bind us together, Lord, with cords that can't be broken. Distance will not destroy them. The offense we cause to each other will be overcome. The level of distress and challenge that my brothers and sisters face will not cause me to turn my face away in terror or disgust. Bind us together. It's a prayer because that kind of love is a divine love. I can't just determine to love you like that more than you can determine to love me. But we can pray. We can pray that we would grow. We can pray that we would grow in love. There's some music that goes with this. And it's going to play. And it's going to sing through these words. And there's a verse that goes with it. It's going to play through it probably three or four times. Just encourage you to listen the first time. And then to join in and to sing along if you wish to make this your prayer. If you wish to make this your prayer. You may not wish to make this your prayer. If you do, join in. It's not a complicated tune. They didn't do those in the 80s. Not in my church anyway.
ourselves to you and into your great love. Thank you for your strength to endure opposition, the peace that you grant us, the rootedness that you gift us, and the family in which you've placed us. May nothing intrude on the love that you have given us and that we may share with each other, we pray. A distance not come between us nor hell, nor high water, neither Satan, nor tempter, nor any human frailty, but would you unite us and connect us just as you please, O head of the body. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we're just about finished. I'd like to suggest that before you leave this morning, you give your bulb to somebody else. Don't hang on to it. Entrust it to somebody else. Maybe there are some keen gardeners that will be happy to hoover them up. Just as there are some people amongst us that God has called to be pastors and to care for many. Um, don't take it away by yourself. Find someone and entrust your spiritual security into the community that God has given us together, rather than expecting it to be safeguarded by your strength and determination, rest amongst brothers and sisters and let someone out. And you may need to receive someone else's. You may go home with 10 bulbs to plant. Well, praise God. It's wonderful to have brothers and sisters who trust us. Amen.